This podcast is a project of the Medina Focus with the goal of providing space for collaboration and community among practitioners to the Muslim diaspora in North America. As people around the world have immigrated to the West, many Christians have realized that they live and work in the midst of the nations, and they often feel alone and unprepared to communicate cross-culturally. If you are looking for conversation and community surrounding issues of loving Muslim friends in Jesus' name, we welcome you into the conversation. Hey everyone, my name is Brian. Welcome back to the program. I know a lot of people have entered into diaspora ministry as the world has changed, both in terms of how many peoples around the world are are moving into the diaspora themselves. You could think of maybe the Syrians or other North Africans that left during and after the Arab Spring. Uh, That's a very common phenomena that's happening in today's world. And the other side of that is if you are a full-time missionary with a traditional organization, you know that it is harder and harder to stay in countries uh, for the long haul. And oftentimes countries go through purges where they will start uh, giving the left foot of fellowship to people who are living there. And people are forced to find a new country to work in or some are, are returning home. And this is often the entry point into uh, diaspora ministry, and this this uh, creates an interesting an interesting working environment where you have a lot of experience, but then you're in a very different uh, community, a very different context than you're used to working in, and uh, life can feel very very different, very transitional. In many ways, if this is your story, uh, your life. Is in is mimicking the lives of those who are in diaspora. I remember when my family and I we returned to the field, and uh, if you've read Nate's book, um, it, you know by his return from the field, uh, both of these, you know, we we went through pretty interesting circumstances, and then we come back to the states, and and for myself, it was just this time of constant constant flux. It felt like there was no sense necessarily of of returning home. Um, and this is such a common experience. But this is, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, it's the missionary experience. It's the return experience. On the other hand, uh, this experience is also, like I said, that shared by millions and millions of people around the world who have left their home and are living in a state of flux. So maybe this gives us a little bit of uh, sensitivity towards them. Another phenomena that I like to talk about in diaspora conversations that that gets overlooked again and again is reaching the the 1.5 generation and the second generation so that's those who who were born overseas but moved to the states early in life that's your 1.5 and so they're still very in tune they're typically bilingual still very in tune with home culture uh, at the same time very very local to their new country and then the second generation which tends to be a little bit less in touch with their home culture and language uh, but very, very in touch with their new one um, to the sense that they feel local there. And so today's guest is representing many of these boxes that I have just uh, laid out before you. And so this will be an interesting discussion to hear. So I have with me today, uh, we have Jennifer. She grew up in Southern California and worked with refugees in East Africa from 1993 to 2002. 
Her primary role was discipling new believers there. When they returned from East Africa, Jennifer and her family settled in the Midwest to continue working among East African refugees, and she's currently working on a master's degree in development studies at William Carey International University, focusing on generation 1.5 and second generation refugee issues. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Uh, It sounds like you've had a pretty uh, interesting missionary career already, but if you would, just take a moment and tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Sure. When we came back from East Africa, we felt like it was really important to have a platform in the community, so I work full-time. Um, for a local school district, and then uh, engage in ministry during breaks, after school, weekends, and things like that. So um, I've been, as I mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, I've been back to school working on a master's degree and really looking at the um, Gen 1.5 second generation issues. So I'm kind of in a bit of a transition period, and then also with COVID hitting, Um, it closed down opportunities that I had, but really um, my main, my main focus is reaching college age kids who've grown up in the West um, living between two cultures and are now at the community college. So that involves um, mobilizing college students to reach out to um, the refugee kids in their, their school, but also um, just increasing vision and then I'm on a steering committee for a group that's here in, in my city um, looking at how do we help refugees and immigrants uh, across the city through various churches and organizations. So kind of a long answer. Um, it feels like nothing right now because of COVID, right. um, but uh, I sure hope that things will get back to normal eventually. Yeah. So for a lot of people, when they start into diaspora ministries, they are either returning from the field or maybe they're starting out fresh. Uh, But for you, from your your life story, it seems like diaspora ministry has been part of it since you were already working with refugees in East Africa. So you already have experience working with that, uh, that same group overseas, and now you're back here in the States kind of doing something, I mean, obviously a different context, but doing something similar. Yeah. um, When we came back, we we felt like we still had a lot of good years of ministry ahead of us. And so we were looking in the U.S. for specific things in a city where we would settle with our our kids who were emerging teenagers. Um, We were looking for churches that already had a vision for reaching out to the Muslim refugees in their city. And then we were also looking for a safe place to live and work. We wanted a sizable community um, that wasn't going to move away because we really wanted to be able to put down roots. And then um, we were praying for affordable housing. And I think the Lord really put that on our hearts so that when this opportunity came up, we knew really clearly this is where we were supposed to be. The difference, though, is that in East Africa, most of our work was with um, those who had already started to follow Christ. And here we're in a much more evangelistic role, um, working with, you know, the Muslim community. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, about your your time there and your your time here, 
and this is obviously a change in context. You know, you mentioned being in trans in transition. Um, probably being a worker on the field uh, feels very concrete, and maybe coming back here feels a little less concrete. I know that's something that a lot of people talk about is trying to find you know meaning and identity and in all of this, and and so a lot of it feels really kind of risky. Um, or like you're making decisions and there's no historic baseline that you're measuring it against. Whereas, you know, overseas stuff, it's a little bit more measurable of seeing what others have done before you. So what risks are you taking in your current uh, place? You know, um, when we first started, we worked with adults um, in ESL. We set up ESL classes. We were working with kids and tutoring programs. We did apartment complex ministry, um, gathered local churches together to pray and train people. And um, it, it, it really became apparent to us that there was one segment of the community that was being missed, and that was the college-age kids. Um, those who were like 18 to 24 who really are the ones who are going through the biggest life change of anybody is, you know, moving from being kids and being dependent on their parents to independent, looking for careers, looking, thinking about marriage. And so the risk actually is that this is sort of uncharted waters. There isn't, I haven't been able to find many people at all who are engaging with the, the Gen 1.5, which are those who were born overseas but have grown up um, significantly engaging with uh, another culture, which would be, in our case, you know, North American culture, or second generation, those who were born here, but have grown up biculturally. And when I first saw them, you know, I, I was surprised. They weren't necessarily wearing head coverings or they weren't wearing traditional clothes. And, and I didn't really understand that this was almost like a new group, um, they, they're different than their parents who are right. super familiar. Yeah. So I think for me, that risk is um, trying something new uh, that I don't, I don't know who's yet um, done it much. Like there are great campus ministries reaching out to North American kids. There are great ministries reaching out to international students who've come and are going back to their home country. But I don't, I feel kind of alone just in looking for those mm -hmm. who are reaching the ones who are here. Yeah. And staying. That that's a yeah. fascinating phenomenon because I see the same thing in my own context where when people get excited about working with these people groups, their immediate attention is drawn to refugees, the first generation, which is is not a bad thing at all. But, mm -hmm. you know, 1.5 and second generation uh it just has such different challenges to it um even just helping them navigate you know how do you operate in this world and still connected to your to your home world so what are the speaking of challenges what are the greatest challenges for your work there you know so it, i have kind of this little story that i could tell i think that kind of typifies it as a missionary you know when you feel like you have an idea that's of the lord you pray about it you strategize and you then try it out. So I was in my fifties and uh, felt like I was supposed to go try this out. And I signed up for a class at the community college 
And um, there were no Muslims in my class. I was so surprised. And I had this like, I guess it's going to be harder than I thought kind of attitude. But um, I, I tried to talk to every college kid I could, you know, everyone who was from the country where I worked. And um, I finally came to this point where I felt like the Lord said he wasn't going to use me the way I thought he was going to use me. And as I began to really think about that and pray, it took a while, but I felt like what the Lord was saying is he wants to use college students to reach other college students. So Christian kids, I could go down and, you know, take a class here and there, but wouldn't it be way more powerful if there's a whole group of Christian students who are acknowledging, recognizing their classmates, praying for them, intentionally building relationships. So for me, I think that's one of my biggest challenges is I have this burning passion and I want to see Christian kids, you know, engage, not just me as this older woman who it's not organic that way, you know, but for another 18 year old to be reaching their classmate would be totally natural and it could be, it could be really beautiful. Right. So when a lot of these ministry projects start, we often try doing one thing and then it changes into another thing, or we see that outcomes happen that, that we really didn't plan on. And these are often wonderful, uh, wonderful outcomes. So what are the unintended outcomes that you've seen as you've done this kind of work? Well, actually, this is the outcome. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of back up the story, uh, speak a little bit more in circles as opposed to a linear um, conversation, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, okay. So when we first came, we were, uh, we had just these great ministries with other churches. And um, I was wearing uh, very um, conservative clothes, long skirts, um, being really, we were all being very culturally sensitive. I was speaking the language, um, going into homes, uh, really, really felt like this was a valid ministry. You know, if I look back, I can't see where there was some terrible thing that was going on that would prevent us from having any fruit. But I had so many conversations with women. Um, they, They were always asking me questions, you know, about my faith and about what Christians believe and and what are our practices and things like that. So it was always super easy to have a conversation, but it would always like kind of die in the middle. I, I could explain something, but it wouldn't connect. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a back and forth conversation. It was like, I would kind of present my, my ideas, my response, even praying for people and seeing the Lord answer prayers. It still couldn't, the, the women I worked with couldn't, couldn't take it and go any farther than just sort of observing it. And I was praying with a friend. It was the end of the summer. We'd had this, you know, great summer of of ministries around the city. And my friend and I said, what's it going to take? You know, what is it going to take to see a movement of Muslim refugees in the U.S. come to Christ? What's it going to take in our city? And so we prayed and I said, Lord, what stone have we not unturned in the city? And the moment I prayed it, I thought about the community college kids. And it was kind of like this aha, because the Muslim background believers that we knew in East Africa had accepted Christ at that very time of life when they were 
um, becoming somewhat independent. They could, you know, move around the city a little bit. Now, that's not strategically always ideal. You really would rather see a whole family come to Christ. But those who are, are thinking about faith, those who have kind of capacity for change, fall within that age age range. And um, on the converse, when a mom comes to Christ with six kids, you know, she's, it, it's a challenge. Um, it's a big challenge. She's concerned about what her family is saying and doing and threats against taking away her kids. And, you know, it's often been single moms in our case. And then they're trying to work and provide childcare and on a refugee salary. That's just really impractical. Mm-hmm. And then, um, to be honest, too, what happened in our situation is we had these tutoring programs and, and then we um, had a really great ministry through our church and and kids from um, this this country that we worked with, um, Muslim kids were coming to our church and then we're hearing the, you know, talk about Jesus that was for all kids. They were just kind of integrated into the whole group. And now there had been full disclosure um, before the kids signed up that, you know, there would be teaching about Jesus, there would be teaching from the Bible. But what ended up happening is we had two kids um, express the interest in following Christ. And we thought, what do you do with that? What do you do when there's a third grader and a 13-year-old who want to follow Jesus? How, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you move forward in that? And so um, about that time, there was the case of a a young woman named Rifka Berry who had accepted Christ. She was under the age of 18 and she was afraid she was going to be um, sent back to her parents' country. She was not from the country I work in, but um, she ran away to another state. There was, you know, crossing borders. There was a Christian family that was housing her. And then she ended up in child protective services. And, you know, that's just a, that's a, that's so chaotic. But if we are engaging in ministry with um, young adults who are are a little more independent, um, some of those issues can be avoided. Now, again, if we think strategically, we want to see a whole family come to Christ, right? So my methodology methodology has changed a lot to more of a, you know, what's your big ask is not, you know, will you follow Jesus, but would you gather your family and friends together, and let's let's study the Bible together, um, and then that way the gospel is going into a whole family network as opposed to extracting someone out. But um, I think your question—sorry, I've talked a lot. I think your question was, um, what was the transition? Like, what was the shift? This this reaching out to college students was my shift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, so as your, you know, part of your strategy seems to be mobilization and uh, kind of a disciple making where you're replicating the the workforce, um, obviously there's a number of ways of doing ministry with Muslims and a lot of these are controversial. Uh, how do you navigate the different disagreements that surround uh, how people do Muslim ministry? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's really helpful to remember is that most of us are pioneering this. We're, we're trying to figure it out. 
we haven't seen a lot of people come to Christ in our context, um, in in diaspora ministry or, you know, in, in a lot of the, the countries that people have worked with the people groups. We're kind of pioneers, so we're trying new things out. And if we see that something isn't working, the, the logical response is to make an adjustment. So sometimes those adjustments, we might look at it and say, you know, is that a is that a good idea or not? And we might be able to point out all the mistakes and flaws with it, but why not try it? And and then we might be able to fine tune something from there. So my first thought is that we're we're all just trying this. Um, of course, we're you know educated, we're we're networking, we're collaborating, we're continually studying. But um, until Christ returns, we're all still learning. The second thing, and I think, um, you know, in my context, one of the most controversial points has been the insider movement. And um, my thought is that it can be a snapshot in time. In different contexts, the Apostle Paul functioned differently. You know, there were times that he was um, escaping out of a basket. There were times he was tent making. There was times he was traveling around preaching. And so in different contexts and in different situations, people, I think, can be fluid in their identity. They can be fluid in the way they engage. Um, and, And so I look at some of these things as it's a snapshot in time. I don't function today the same way I did 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even five years ago. And so allowing that fluidity, um, I think, is really helpful. And then the other thing is that um, my my thought is the Westerners, the uh, missionaries, we, we might come with educated information, but really the ones who live and, and breathe and um, uh, really need to own their faith are the Muslim background believers. And so empowering them to make decisions right. and letting them make them, I think is really helpful as well. And, you know, so sometimes they might see things differently than us, but my, my default mode tends to be to go with what are they telling us? What are they seeing and saying? Right. So, yeah. Those, those two things. One is none of us really have it all figured out. And then the second is um, different things can be fluid. Yeah, I think you said something key there when it comes to contextualization. Whatever your stance on contextualization is, or whatever stance you're opposed to, it's very easy to take this approach of, you know, I am the judge and I rightly judge uh, cultures and how we should integrate. And I heard somebody else talk about contextualization, uh, and he and I are not on the same place on the scale, if you will. But I loved what he said, and he says it, it has to be a two-way conversation where it's more of like testing okay. theories and hearing back, and there has to be this attitude of humility interacting with the people who are actually coming from that culture, right? It can't be where they are in charge or yeah. we, we are in charge. It has to be a two-way communication. Yes, I think that's beautiful, right? So, so equally hard in navigating some of these disagreements is navigating identity and, you know, you've got, I mean, particularly for you, who's, who's served overseas in a more traditional type role, now you're back home where you're a lot closer to 
uh, family members and friends and church members who are probably a lot more aware of what you're doing and perhaps even meeting some of the same people that you're meeting. So how do you navigate your identity between all of these different groups? You know, I think that was part of our first question when we came back is issue of identity because we had such a hard time overseas when people would say, what do you do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, what's your answer? Well, if, if it was that I work for a organization and administration, it's pretty clear you're probably a missionary or, you know, if you don't have a good platform, um, it leaves your identity really hanging. And we felt like it was very important to communicate to the community that we are ministering to, but also to the local church that the Lord has brought the nations here. And if he has brought the nations here, it's not just the task for the professionals. It's for all of us. We need to all be reaching out to our neighbors, our coworkers, those who are going to our schools. Um, and so. I really try to have a pretty integrated identity, um, you know, being very careful with what goes on the internet. I've actually stayed off of Facebook just because of that, or been super stealth, you know, and, and not saying a lot of my background information, but more that um, who I am today. And Rick Love talked a lot about that, of having an integrated identity, that it was right. um, what he told people was who he truly was. And so um, I've tried to be pretty upfront. And and um, so I've gone into homes um, and I've gone as the one who's working with the children uh, or that I'm coming to help the children and the family in a professional capacity. Um, so that's just been really helpful. Um, now, in terms of my, my family, uh, The extended family doesn't live in our city, so I don't have as much difficulty, um, you know, in terms of who I am with my family. And then in terms of ministry, I'm talking about my extended family. But one of the things that I felt like um, we do have some Muslim background believers in our city, not necessarily from the country I worked in, but from other countries. And years ago, um, a guy said to us, he had been at home alone on Christmas day in his room. This was in East Africa. And it it struck me, this is a day to gather together with friends and family. This is a day to celebrate, you know, the birth of Christ. This is, this is a really special day. And this guy had nothing to do. And, and as I thought about that, of course, who would he celebrate with, you know, his family's not going to celebrate his, um, you know, neighbors aren't. And so I've always felt like it's important for us as the church to be, in a sense, an extended family to Muslim background believers who would not normally have family to celebrate with. So, um, you know, in terms of my situation, I haven't necessarily had to juggle extended family gatherings and holidays and things like that. But um, I've made it a really big point to make sure there are Muslim background believers celebrating holidays with our nuclear family. I'm not sure if that answered everything you were thinking, if there's, you know. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. That was that was very good. Um, It it just is one of those challenging things. Rick Love's uh, own stance on these issues came out of 
for those who don't know, if you've ever read his paper, um, he well, he is actually one of the examples in there where he was outed in in the newspaper actually uh, from a student in class, and so that was actually why he developed his, what he called his three D identity. Uh, so it's such an important uh, such an important challenge that we have to think through. So what's what is one tip for a healthy work life balance? Because you're you're returning, you're in transition. Of course, you have a family. Um, there's ministry going on. You're also a student. So how do you make all of this work? <laughs> well, you know, I think that's the problem for all of us uh, is finding a healthy work life balance. But um, one thing I I feel is really helpful is to keep a Sabbath. And I grew up in a conservative home where the Sabbath meant all the things you couldn't do. You know, I couldn't get ice cream from the ice cream truck. Right. I couldn't go right. shopping because people shouldn't be working. And I, I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. And I had to take a nap. So it was like the worst day of the week for me. Uh-huh. And um, a friend, yeah, a friend talked about, you know, when, when God instituted the Sabbath for the Israelites, they had come out of hundreds of years of slavery. And the point in the Sabbath is that you don't have to work seven days a week. You're not a slave. And and what I began to think of is what would make me feel like this is a special day? How can this be a recharge day? And so we actually went through and made a list, um, listening to good music, eating our favorite foods, lighting candles, doing something fun, um, creating a space just even emotionally that that the Sabbath is a special fun day. Um, so I think, you know, it, it would be very easy to say, you know, you just should not do this, not do that, and not do, you know, the other. But that that really, to me, feels like the law. And God instituted feasts and, you know, celebrations. So let's try to make a holiday on Sundays and or whatever day we take our Sabbath, let's try to make it a holiday at least once a week. And that'll, that'll help with that recharge. Yeah, that's a, that's great advice. I remember the first time somebody talked with me about Sabbath, my immediate thought was, but I don't have time to take Sabbath and, uh, (laughs) which is exactly the problem. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, coming from a pretty conservative background myself, it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, things that, that used to be a burden or used to be a law to us when done with different motives, the right motive, uh, all of a sudden becomes kind of the breath of fresh air that it was, it was intended to be. Yes. So I would, yeah. I would love to hear a story from you. Can you tell us a story? Yeah. Um, Uh, There was a really interesting conversation I had with a Muslim gal on the community campus, and um, she was saying that she just could not believe in Christianity. She had such a big issue, Um, and the the point was is that um, in the beginning, God created light, right, and he called the light day, but it wasn't until later that he created the sun. And she said, that just proves that it couldn't be true. How could you have day? How could you have light without the sun? And as we talked, um, we we talked so many points about this. We talked about 
um, Jesus being the light? You know, is God limited to his only light being from the sun? And the fact that he called it day, uh, you know, when he created light and and uh, took her to Revelation where she saw there was no more need for a sun. And, and um, finally, we came to this place of just saying, why don't you just pray about it and ask God to show you? what she said struck me. It just showed me how hungry um, she was. And I believe she's representative of many college students. She said, if you knew how much I've prayed about this. You know, this girl was praying long before she met me. And I'm sure she's continuing to pray that God would show her truth. And how many other kids are asking that same question? God, would you show me truth? You know, would you show me the straight path? Would you show me the right way? And um, to hear this window into her heart was super powerful. Unfortunately, what I didn't realize at the time is that that would have been a great opportunity. Instead of trying to convince her that Jesus is true, would have been a really great opportunity to have asked her to study the Bible. You know, would you like to study together? And now, if I had a chance to go back and do that, my big ask would be, would you gather your family and friends, and would you study the Bible with me? But that's my big story. (laughs) I think it just shows how many questions young adults have. You know, the parents were not asking these kind of questions. Right. And the third grade kids we worked with didn't know these questions existed. College kids are wrestling with them. That's true. What what are what do you think other practitioners should should know that you've discovered? Probably that big ask. Um, you know, I've been praying for a movement of of Muslims, many movements actually in in the U.S. And um, I think we've we've fished in the wrong ponds. You know, we've been fishing with older adults who, by the time they know enough English or we know enough of their language to communicate deeply, it's going to be years down the line. And then even if they were able to communicate verbally, would they be able to make the transition, you know, just within their own uh, life structures with what they would, what it would cost them, what they would you know, wrestle with in terms of loss of status in the community or their children being taken away or being divorced. But, you know, really, I think when I've thought about what a movement of people coming to Christ would look like, it would be just people saying, I want to follow Jesus and, you know, giving their lives to Christ. But instead, what I wish I had known and and what I would love for other people to know is that the big ask is to get them on the road of studying the Bible. Once they start reading it, the word is living. It speaks to us. And and uh, so anyway, that would be the tool I would wish that everybody had. That's good. If if God would answer one prayer request with a yes, what would you ask? Mm, for a movement of, I'm going to say specifically, college-age um, Muslims who have come to the U.S. to children of refugees, for them to come to know Christ. That's good. That's good. Well, we hope that that prayer gets answered, and I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I really look forward to 
uh, hearing more about how this ministry goes in the coming years as hopefully college students uh, trust Christ and other college students uh, are mobilized to uh, join your work there. So we're very excited about this. Thanks, Brian. All right, thank you. You've been listening to the Medina Podcast. This show is hosted by Brian A. Bear and produced by Nate Schultz. The conversations we have on this program are born out of an expanding environment of collaboration among grassroots ministry practitioners across the North American continent. If you'd like to engage on a deeper level, please email us at medinafocus at vision59.com.